0: There's an angst in today's emerging adults that wasn't there for their parents or grandparents. Today's college-aged and young adult men and women are emerging into the most idealized culture, facing pressure to do big things in big ways. But the reality is, no generation has emerged with more young adults still living at home with mom and dad. Most of them aren't doing much at all. The contrast between expectations and what's really happening in your life could be terribly deflating. Join Dana Gresh as she unpacks the life of one of her biblical sheroes. Yes, I said shero. I'm talking about Miriam. Let's head on over to sit by the Nile River as we watch her emerge into her world doing something terribly mundane and normal. This message was originally delivered at Grace Prep as a challenge to one of the senior classes. I want to
1: address the seniors. Where are my seniors? Again, raise your hands, let me see ya. Okay, this message is mostly for you. But I'm not a senior and it really ministered to my heart. So if you're not a senior, lean in because I bet you what we're going to read in God's word today has something to say to you too. And um, seniors, here's the message I want to share with you. If there's one thing that I get to leave you with as you depart into this big wide world to leave your mark, it's this. God does not want you to do great things. Write it down. Go ahead. Michaela just did a double take. She, she, she was ready to write. She had her pen out, down to the notepad, and then I said it, and she looked at me like, are you kidding? God does not want you to do great things. All right. We're going to look at Exodus 2. Exodus 2. And let me set the stage before I read the first few verses for you. We're going to Egypt and we're going to sit by the Nile River, which sounds so very vacation-y, doesn't it? Let's just sip on some, I don't know what they drink in Egypt, but it'll be cool and refreshing. And we'll sit by the Nile River, um, except it's really hot there and super dry and especially dusty. And... On top of that, we're going to go back a few thousand years, and this was before air conditioning, my friends. So you might want to bring a fan, and uh, the paper fan isn't even going to touch it. So you're going to need something much bigger. What they really like back in the day and age is an ostrich feather fan. Only problem with that is it's so enormous that you needed to have somebody to carry it for you on a big, long pole. And so you're probably going to want to, brace yourself, purchase a slave. Yep. We're going back to a day and age before the words human trafficking were offensive. To a time when people were commodities. And the time that we're going back to in Egypt, people were slaves because they were prisoners of war. They were slaves because it was just one people exerting power over another group of people. And that's the particular kind of slavery we're going to look at today. And it happens that people exert power over another group of people when they feel threatened. And apparently the Pharaohs felt very threatened by the presence of the Israelites. Approximately 400 years before we step into the scene... Joseph was there. You remember Joseph in his pretty coat of many colors? Okay, he was there. That story's for another day. But I want to point out this, that the Israelites originally came to this area as foreigners, and they were welcomed because of Joseph's relationship with Pharaoh, and it was a good relationship. But there were about 70 of them. So it was like, hey, have that little field over there. Leave us alone. Eat some of our food. You don't have any food in your land. It'll be fine. But now, suddenly, there are thousands of families, if not millions. The Bible doesn't tell us how many there were and there's lots of discrepancy and disagreement over how many, it's just a whole lot, right? So, Pharaoh decides he doesn't like this. He's feeling, what, threatened by the presence of people. And so, what does he want to do? He exerts power over them and suddenly they're slaves. They're not guests in the land, all right? Well, not suddenly, it happens slowly. So he decides to do two things. One, in Exodus 1.14, he tells his taskmasters to exert power over them and make them work really hard, so hard that it kills off the weak. Okay, we can't really understand that. It's got to be horrific, right? He wants them to be worked to death. And the second thing in Exodus 1.16, and this one's the one that really I want to focus in on today, and it. Sickens me. But he decrees that all of the babies born to the Israelites will be drowned in the Nile. And that's where we enter the story in Exodus 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could not hide him any longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitum and pitch. But she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to, the, to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying." She took pity on him and said, "'This is one of the Hebrews' children.' Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, "'Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women "'to nurse the child for you?' And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "'Go.' the introduction of Moses, the hero of Israel, the man who God will use to lead the Israelites out of slavery. But it's not who I want you to meet today. There's somebody I think that's more important. So first, let's, let's say this, that when this little boy was born, it says in the Bible that they thought he was beautiful. They loved him. They looked at this precious little one and they loved him. So, for three months, they hid him and then they built a little basket and put him in in the river in hopes that they could save him. When the world has big problems, and their world did, you do unusual things. We did some unusual things this year, didn't we? the world had big problems and guess what as we come out of it the world still has big problems and they're not going to go away anytime soon and right now we live in a world with so many big problems that I think it could cause you as seniors to believe the lie that God wants you to do big things and it's not just because we have big problems it's because the world tells you that you don't have value unless you're an influencer Unless you have so many followers, unless you have an Etsy page that the whole world is giving attention to, unless you're on Shark Tank with a product nobody's heard of and probably nobody really needs, there's this lie out there in the world that by the age of 20, you're supposed to have made a mark in a big way, and by the age of 30, you're supposed to like live in a multi-million dollar property, and it's a lie, I see Women and men emerging out of college every day who are defeated because they have to do what all the rest of us had to do when we left college, which is get a pretty regular job. And when the world is in a bad place, and I think our world is in a lot of ways, it's not in the worst place it's ever been. There have been worse times, but it's not in a great place, especially if you're a Christian. There's a lot of opposition to what we believe and how we think. And so you could, between these two problems, big problems in the world and all this big pressure to be big, think, I've got to do great things. And I want to tell you today, God doesn't want you to do great things. I have a few points I want to make as we work through this passage. The first is this, and this is kind of your comfort blanket. This is your freedom to know, oh, I don't have to fix this. I don't have to fix the broken world and I don't have to be an influencer. Point number one is this. I hope you'll write this down. God is at work around us. In verses one to 10, the whole passage that I just read, God is at work. Now you and I can see that because we can look back and read the rest of the book of Exodus, okay? Moses' parents couldn't do that. Moses' sister, who's not even named, couldn't do that. In Exodus 2.24, it says God heard their groaning. God hears your groanings. God hears your complaints. God hears your frustrations. He hears them right now. Exodus 6.1, now you will see what I will do. God is saying, okay, I've had enough. Don't make me come down there. In fact, I'm coming down there. God is at work. Exodus 12.51, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt There it is, the deliverance that they needed and they wanted. And you know, when Jesus was walking this earth, he declared what maybe Moses' parents didn't know. In John 5, 17, Jesus said, my father is always at work around us. He's always at work. He's around us right now. He is at work around us right now. He is not up there taking a nap because there's been a pandemic on the earth and because racism is a problem and because the government doesn't look the way that Almost any of us in this room think it needs to look. He is not taking a nap. He is at work. And you can rest in that. Don't forget that as you leave grace prep. When you feel like your life gets off course or that's not what I thought or, hey, I'm not really good in this major that I picked. God is at work in that. He is at work. When it feels like he's not attending to the problems of our nation, our world, and your world, he's still sitting on his throne. Second thing I want you to see is that God loves to rescue the next generation. God loves to rescue the next generation, and you are that generation. I want to read um, verse 3 to you. It says, When she could not hide him, the mother, no any longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with butumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Okay, I saw this cool thing in this passage, in this verse, when I was reading it. And this is one of those things that when I heard it, when I saw it, when I read it in my research, it felt like God's voice being big in my heart. But I'm afraid when I say it, it could sound like Dana. So... Be amazed when I say this. Can you be amazed when I say this? Can you be excited with me? Okay, so the word for basket in this verse is the same word that is used when we read about the story of Noah for ark. Thank you. (laughs) Very nicely done, especially exuberant, Wade Harris. It's the word to bat, and it literally means basket ark. Can you see what I see, though, there? How cool it is that God said, everything seems broken and everyone that's gone before, they've done so many bad things, but I am going to build an ark and save the next generation. I love that next generation. God loves the next generation. He loves children, he loves all of us, but he, has a, he seems to have a special proclivity to have his eye on the young ones and say, come on, step up, this is your shot, this is your chance. I want to go back to Genesis 1.28 for just a second. Read this with me, and I want you to see it with your eyes so it's not that far behind you. Go ahead, let me hear the beautiful rushing of Bible pages. Genesis 1.28 says this. And God blessed them and said to them, this is Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. All right, now turn over to Exodus 1.7. Exodus 1 7. Let's read that. Put your eyeballs on it. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. You see something? Come on, come on. We're on a hot on a trail here. They were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Come on. That's good stuff right there. You know what that means? It means God was happy with what was happening in Egypt. God was seeing his big plan. Forget our big plans. He was seeing his big plan from the beginning of creation happen. And what did Pharaoh see? He saw evil. He saw evil. God calls children blessings many times in scripture. And he has told us that one of the most great things we can do, and I meant to say most great things, because remember I said God doesn't want us to do great things. Well, this is one of the great things he wants us to do, is have families, have children, have community, have relationship, and all those other big things that we think we're supposed to do, they really often are distractions from God's great thing, God's big plan, that he wants us to fill this earth and commune together, and love each other. That's God's big plan, and that's why God calls children blessings. And they still are today. But Pharaoh didn't think of them as blessings, so he decides that it is good to murder children. Listen to me clearly, and apply this every time you read the news. When a culture starts to call what God says is good, evil, Pharaoh is alive and well. And when a culture starts to call what God says is evil good, Pharaoh is alive and well. And if you read the news today, you will find that Pharaoh is alive and well. An easy example is that Pharaoh thought it was good to murder baby boys by drowning them in a river. And we think in our culture it is good to chemically or surgically murder a child while it's not even out of its mother's womb. God loves to rescue the next generation. And here's the good news of the story as we read what we're reading in Exodus, is God's about to turn what Pharaoh meant for evil into something good. <laughs> Does that sound familiar to you? Because you've probably heard it a time or two in the Bible. God's about to take this thing of drowning the babies. And this mom, she's really smart. She's like, I'm gonna take my baby right to the place Pharaoh's gonna look for him last, to the river where the babies are killed. I'm gonna hide him there because he'll never look for him there. And you can imagine that the soldiers were probably looking for these babies. The midwives were told to drown the babies. The midwives were like, hey, these... The Israeli women, they're vigorous, they give birth so quickly. I don't know if they were lying or not, but they were not participating. And then the soldiers are probably turning over beds and turning over tables looking for babies. So what does she do? She bravely takes them to the very place where Pharaoh says this is where their death will be. And she declares life when she builds that beautiful, what was it? It wasn't a basket, it was an ark. It was an ark of life. It was an ark of life. Listen, this is what I wanna challenge you to do, build an ark. You, seniors, as you leave, build arcs of refuge, arcs of faith, arcs of truth everywhere you go. I don't know what that will look like for you. I don't know what it will look like because it's going to look different for every single one of us. Moses' ark looked different, Noah's ark looked different, your ark is going to look different. But let me declare something that I believe is true. Grace prep is an ark. I believe it's an ark. And I believe that every day you spend here building it with us, making it a safe place, you are participating in a good work of God and you are helping rescue the next generation. Press in with us. Build an ark with me. Build an ark with Bob. Build an ark as a team together. You do your part, I'll do mine. Now what should we do? I'm glad you asked, I'm gonna tell you. There's three things that I see in here. We're not gonna talk about the hero of Exodus. We're gonna talk about the shero of Exodus. I'm a girl, I get to talk about sheroes. So here we go. This particular shero in this passage isn't even named, is she? She's not named, but what's her name? Miriam, we know her name because eventually we get around to the Bible records that we know her name. But in this particular passage, we don't even know, but she is the Shiro, And she does three things that I think apply to us today. And I want to invite you to do these three things too as you go out into the world and build your ark. First, she did what was before her. Write this down, please. If you're a senior, write this down. She did what was before before her. She did what was before her. Look at, look at verse 4. It says, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So the mom puts the baby in the ark, right? And the sister, we think, Bible scholars think she was maybe between the ages of 7 and 12. Probably didn't have big ideas, big plans, big ambitions, didn't desire to be an influencer. Maybe that's why God used her. And she's doing what? What is she doing when she's sitting there? Watching them. What do we call that today? When you say, hey, I want to go out on a date. Can you come watch my kids? What do we call that? Babysitting. Miriam was babysitting. How common. How mundane. How non-big. How ungreat? She's babysitting. Might even be boring. She does what is before her. Listen to me. You didn't graduate from college yet, right? So you don't have this disease that I'm about to tell you about. But there is a disease that you get right about the time you turn the tassel after college or if you don't go to college, right about the time you're like 21, you get this little disease and it's called, I need to do something big or I'm not gonna do nothing at all. Anybody seen this disease? Okay, yeah, you've seen this disease. Listen, I gotta tell you this past year, I love writing books. I love teaching. I love touring. I didn't get to do all those big things. I had to do what was in front of me. I had to do what was in front of me. I had to learn things that I had never done before. I had to learn to write marketing emails. I had to do things that seemed really common and really boring. I had to do those things because what was in front of me is what God needed me to do. And what was in front of Miriam was what God needed her to do. And God may call you to go get a nice little nine-to-five job after you get this major, illustrious, beautiful degree. And you think, but I'm supposed to be a fill-in-the-wonderful blank with a big thing. He's like, no, I need you to do this. You know, that Bible verse we take out of context all the time. My friend and I, my friend Janet and I were talking about, if we changed all the posters and t-shirts that we use in Christianity, like I can do great things through Christ who strengthens me, like we put that on our t-shirt, right? Like if we actually put it in context on a t-shirt, it was like, I can sit here in prison and be okay through Christ. You know what that tells me is you could do a nine-to-five job and be okay. You know what tells me is that wherever you are right now, even though the grass is greener on whatever pasture you're looking in, do what is in front of you. Do it well. That's what she models for us, this Shiro of the Bible. Simple acts of obedience. She does what's in front of her. Number two. Number two is this. She waited faithfully. You see that also in verse four. It says, She stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Okay, so what I see in there is a little bit of thumb tapping, a little bit of toe tapping, a little bit of like, Okay, are we there yet? <laughs> like it's just one verse, but I think there's a whole lot of boring waiting there. Do you ever wait for something? No fun. Feels like God's put you on the sidelines. Put me in, coach, put me in, coach. Our spirit cries. Just let me in. Let me have some action. Come on. I want to play in the game. And and God's like, no, that looked pretty good on that bench right there. I, I think I could do something with you right there. I think he's changing our hearts. I think he's changing our attitudes. I think he's building characters. She sat here at a distance waiting faithfully. Waiting faithfully. And I wonder, you know, I wonder sometimes if there's a testing that's happening there when we're waiting to see if we'll obey. Whatever comes up, will we be obedient? Will we be ready to obey when it's hard? Number three, she does this. She obeys courageously and immediately. Let's read verse 2-7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, so Pharaoh's daughter has like, oh, look, cute baby. And he's crying. Oh, I think I want to take him home. Now, if you're a 12-year-old girl and the daughter of the man who has declared that your brother is worthy of being drowned in a river, if she's touching him and holding him and comforting him, I think I might run home and tell my mom. Somebody bigger, stronger, wiser. But she doesn't do that. She doesn't do that. She went to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now, I don't know if this was pre planned or Miriam was just really bright or the Holy Spirit dropped a good idea into her head at the moment. Maybe all those moments of waiting, she'd been thinking. Maybe that time, that waiting, was so she would know how to and think through what she would do if she was discovered. Maybe she already had that idea there, and the waiting was what brought it. Think about that. I just thought of that. I felt really good thinking of a good idea. That was a good idea right there on the spot. Holy Spirit brought it. When the circumstances require her to move, she moves. She obeys courageously, and she obeys, listen to this word, immediately. You know what I think? I think she couldn't have done that if she hadn't been doing obedience training all along. You know, there are lots of little things in the Bible that you don't obey every single day. We could start with the Ten Commandments. It would be a good place to start. Look them up and see if you obeyed them today. The problem isn't that we're waiting for God to do something big in our lives. The problem is that we're not waiting with a heart of obedience. There are things in your life right now that God's probably asking you to surrender or to do. Maybe it's to share your faith with a friend. Maybe, maybe it's to begin to obey your parents because they want you to keep your room cleaner. Maybe it's to prepare diligently for a test. Maybe it's to do the work that needs to be done for that dreaded senior project. That's an act of obedience. I'm sorry, it is. You're here at this school, and so when this is a requirement to graduate, fulfilling the obligations of that project are an act of obedience. They are. Most of us don't need to hear a big revelation of God to obey him. We just need to obey the truth that's already in front of us. So if you need to do a little late-nighters to get you ready for your senior project in a few weeks, you need to do that. It's an act of obedience. And I think when we are in obedience training... And we do whatever is before us with an obedient heart, waiting for God to do whatever he needs to do in our hearts so that we can be a part of his big plan when the moment comes and we courageously and immediately do what What we've been practicing all along. We reflexively obey. That's why the little stuff matters. That's why the don't gossip matters. Hmm. Reading about that in the Bible this morning and I was feeling like my toes were all stepped on. it matters. What did Miriam do? What was her part in building Yark? She didn't gather the bulrushes or paint the pitch. That was her mom's job. Those were also simple acts, weren't they? Pretty normal things, building a basket. I bet she'd built a lot of those in her life. But in all these things, in the normal act of babysitting, she said, yes, Lord. And sitting there by the Nile River in the heat, remember, without the air conditioning, and she probably didn't even have an ostrich fan. Yes, Lord, I will sit here. And then when Pharaoh's daughter approaches and she knows this is the woman whose dad is killing baby boys, I wonder what will happen if I try to rescue one. She doesn't count the cost. She says, yes, Lord. So God doesn't want you to do big things. God wants you to be a part of his big plan, not your big plan. He wants you to do obedient things. He wants you to do obedient things. He wants you to be so grounded in truth, in God's word, that when the normal things come before you, you do them with so much obedience that when the right time comes, he's able to trust you, to insert you into his big God-sized
0: task of a plan. God does not want you to do great things. He wants you to do something bigger, God-sized tasks, and that happens as you obey Him in the little stuff. This message was presented at Grace Prep, a new model in Christian education founded by Bob and Dana Gresh. We believe in God-sized tasks, and we believe Grace Prep is one of them. Right now, we're obeying the Lord in the little things and watching new God-sized stories unfold. If you live in central Pennsylvania, come be a part of it. Learn more at graceprep.com. This podcast was produced by Pure Freedom Ministries.